So the video screen illustration is that you die and you're standing before God and he watches the videotape of your life with you. So everything that you've done in secret, everything that you've thought, all of the bad things you've done, all of the good things that you've done are played in front of you. I don't know about you, but I've never really liked that illustration when a pastor uses it. Well, we all use that illustration. We all use it, and um, it's in varied forms. So this morning, I want to give a little bit of a, a wrinkle to that illustration. So I want you to imagine that you have died, or the world has ended. Maybe the world that was supposed to end yesterday due to a planet coming into our solar system, or whatever that was, maybe he was a couple of days off and that happens today or tomorrow. Either way, you are in heaven, and you're in line waiting for your turn to review the video screen with God. And so you're about halfway back in the line, so there's billions of people in front of you, so you have plenty of time to think through all of the things that you did in life. And so when you finally get up to the front of the line, the videotape starts. And there's this big screen behind you, like a big IMAX screen. And it's got your picture in the right-hand corner and your Facebook profile picture and your favorite quote, you know, or whatever, whatever godly quote that you came up with. And so you begin watching... It's you and God, and uh, first you're born, and you're born, and it's just a, a great thing, and a little hospital somewhere, and you're a cute little baby, and then you begin to grow up, and you start to cry a little bit, but it's still kind of cute, and then as you become a toddler, it's, it's still cute when you disobey in some ways, but then when you become a junior high student, it stops being cute. So you and God watch this and you see how you have all of these wonderful times with your parents, but there's other times where you are disobedient to your parents. And then you come to your teen years and you and God watch together your first kiss. And it's a precious moment and you look back at it with nostalgia, but then you see that moment when you discovered your friends' dad's magazines and that began a lifelong struggle of lust for you. And so that part's not too great. And then you become married, you get married, and there's marital bliss, and then there's marital strife. Sometimes you're so content, other times you're so unthankful. Sometimes you are involved in the church and you're supporting the church, and other times you have these idols in your life that take the place of God. Many times you're saying that God is real, God feels very real in your life, and other times he doesn't feel real at all. And so at the end of your life, at the end of this video that you and God watch, he pronounces the verdict, and the verdict is guilty. The verdict is unrighteous. We saw the past two weeks that the first 17 verses of Romans are very positive. Paul says that they're famous for the gospel, that their faith is known all through the world. He says that he can't wait to get to them so that he can preach the gospel all the more, that so he can go deeper and deeper into these gospel truths. 
He says he can't wait to get to them so he can, too, be part of what they're doing so he can impart some spiritual gift. He tells them in the first 17 verses that he's been praying for them, that he constantly remembers them in his prayers. There's nothing negative to say to the Roman church. These are the good guys. These are the good people. And so for the first 17 verses, it's very, very encouraging. But then in verse 18, there's this abrupt change. And this goes on for the rest of the chapter, in chapter 2 and chapter 3. What is happening here? doesn't seem to fit with the rest of Romans. Paul walks through these countless sins. And I know pastors who take each one of these sins and spends one week on each one of them, from Romans 1 through Romans 2. And if you count them up, it's dozens. It's a lot. So that could take a whole year just to go through each one of these sins. I mean, look at verses 18 through 19. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Right off the bat, we see that they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, all of us know in our hearts that there is a God. All of us know that there is a Creator. There is no such thing as an atheist. All of us know, but yet we suppress that truth that there is a God because we don't want any accountability. Because we want to live in unrighteousness. There's a story of a young girl, and this girl was raised in a family where they taught her about evolution, and they taught her that, they're, you know, that we just kind of happen through natural causes, through a big bang, through evolution, through whatever. And then when she became a little bit older, her dad decided to talk to her about the other view, the viewpoint of creation. So he began telling her that there are some people out there who actually believe that there is a deity, that there is a a being who created everything that you see around you. And she said, I know who that is. I know that person. I've known that person in my heart since I was a little girl. Because every man knows, we all know in our hearts that there is a God. But we don't want to be held accountable. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. They weren't thankful. How could a person not be thankful in this life? How could we not be thankful, especially in this country, especially with freedom to worship, especially with the blessings that we have? How could a person not be thankful just to wake up and to look outside and to see nature and to just have the wind in their face, to eat good food, to drink good wine? I mean, how could we not be thankful? These all, all of these gifts from God. This past week, um, we have a little tiny dog, and uh, I'm not really a dog person. I mean, I am, but we just haven't had a lot of luck with dogs, and so we finally have had some luck where where we had this cute little puppy dog, and uh, she doesn't get much bigger than what she is right now, and uh, she just sits with us every night, and I was looking at her last night, and I said, that has to be the cutest thing that God ever created. 
I mean, her name is Winnie. If Winnie were the only blessing that I had in my life that God created, it should probably be enough because of the sheer beauty and the the cuteness and just the way that the dog is. I mean, it's just like the blessings that God has given us through creation are unbelievable. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. God gave us these great, mysterious minds. He gave us reason. He builds into us an inherent sense of right and wrong. He allows us to, unlike a dog that would walk by a painting, a beautiful painting, and not really feel anything. We can walk by a beautiful painting and feel in our hearts that it's beautiful. We can sense beauty, that he's given us these minds. He's put an innate sense of God inside of us, and yet we become fools. Verse 23, exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds and animals and creeping things. Instead of glorifying God with these good gifts, we worship the creation rather than the creator. And many times we can see that we don't make images, we don't have images that we bow down to, but we have other things in our lives that we bow down to, don't we? Idols that replace God. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. God gave them over to what? To sexual immorality. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. Exchanged the truth about God for a lie. We live in a culture, especially in our country right now, where there is no esteeming of the truth. There's no esteeming of the truth. Many times even in the church, there's no looking at the truth and and glorying in the truth. And that's what Paul says here is that we exchange the truth, in this case about God, for a lie. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Again, sexual sin. Verse 28, and they did not see fit to acknowledge God. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. God gives us over to a depraved mind. Verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. And then Paul just goes off. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They've become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity, gossip, slanders. He leaves no man standing. Verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Here's the irony for us. Paul wasn't talking about the people inside the church in Romans 1. So as we find ourselves in these sins, 
He wasn't even talking about the people inside the church. He's talking about those out there, those outside the church. How do I know that? Notice how many times Paul uses these pronouns, they and their, verse 19, plain to them, verse 21, although they knew God, their thinking, their foolish hearts, verse 22, they claimed to be wise, they became fools, verse 23, they exchanged the glory of God, verse 24, God gave them over, 25, they exchanged the truth of God, 26, they exchanged natural relations, verse 27, and received in themselves, not in yourselves, in themselves. They, them, their, those people out there. Verse 28, they did not think it worthwhile to acquire knowledge of God. Verse 29, they are filled with all kinds of evil. They are gossips. They are slanderers. They are all of these things. Verse 30, they are God-haters. They disobey their parents. 31, they have no understanding. 32, they know the way God is, but they practice sin. Verse 32, again, they approve of those who do. Paul is talking about the Gentiles. He is talking about the pagans, the people out there. Notice what Paul says in verses 24, 26, and 28. God gave them up. God gave them up, and then he repeats it, God gave them up. You know, many times we try to explain away why there's hurricanes, why there's natural disasters, why bad things happen, and inevitably you'll have a pastor or a Christian leader stand up when we have a national tragedy and talk about this sin or that sin, and God was judging this city because this city embraced a certain lifestyle. I remember back when there was the earthquake in Haiti, there was a famous pastor who said that the reason there was an earthquake in Haiti was because the Haitians had made a deal with the devil back in the 70s, and this was God's judgment on them. So, which is it? I mean, here's what happens when pagans sin and continue in sin. Do you know what God does? He does nothing. He gives them up. He gives them over. That's one of the worst things that can happen, is God lifting his blessing, lifting his protection. God gave them up, gave them over. And for the record, it's idiotic for a Christian pastor or a leader to stand up during a time of national tragedy and to say those kinds of words. So in Romans 1, Paul's talking about the pagans, not even talking about the sins inside the church. And the Jewish people listening, they would have been used to this kind of talk. There's an extra biblical work, a book, it's called The Wisdom of Solomon. Now, the people would have been very familiar with this book. Paul would have been familiar with this book. And in Wisdom chapter 13 and 14, there's language that's very similar to Romans chapter 1. Talking about the people out there, listing their sins, talking about carved images and idols and things like that. Talking about denying the existence of God. And then you finally come to Wisdom chapter 15, and this is the answer. But you, our God, are kind and true, patient and ruling all things in mercy. For even if we sin, we are yours, knowing your power. But we will not sin. 
because we know that you acknowledge us as yours, for to know you is complete righteousness, and to know your power is the root of immortality, for neither has the evil intent of human art misled us, nor the fruitless toil of painters, a figure stained with varied colors, whose appearance arouses yearning in fools, so that they desire the lifeless form of a dead image. And so, in other words, the people reading Romans 1 were feeling pretty good about themselves. Paul had complimented them in verses 1 through 17. They were famous for the gospel. They would have been expecting something like what I just read to follow Romans 1. But we will not sin. We're not like those people out there. But what happens in Romans 2? Paul does something incredible. This whole time, the people thought that he was speaking of those out there, they, them, there. This whole time, they thought that he was going to say, but we're not like them. He's been holding back, like, remember the, the boxer, the heavyweight Mike Tyson back in the 80s? Holding back that right hook, holding it back, holding it back. And then he would just bring it out and that would be the end. I mean, Paul is waiting to throw a haymaker. He has been hustling them this entire time. Look at what he says in chapter 2. Therefore, you... Not they anymore. You have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, and I love this, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God. That's what this whole section of Scripture is about. It's not really about the specific sins. It's kind of about those, but it's more about the judgmental nature of Christians and how being judgmental is a sure barometer of where you are spiritually in your life. Perhaps it's a way of knowing whether or not you know Jesus. And I'll show you that in a minute. And we all struggle. Back to the video screen illustration. You're standing in line, you're waiting, there's billions of people in front of you, you're going to watch this movie together, and you finally get to the front and you're confused and you're remembering that you really weren't into the Jesus thing that much. You're not sure exactly what to say. You've heard some stories of some people thinking they were believers and then it didn't work out for them. And so you're flustered, and God can see that you're flustered. And by the way, this is not theological, this illustration, at all. So please excuse me with that. And so you get up there, and God says, you know what? I'm not going to judge you based on anything in the Bible, because you didn't really read the Bible that much. So I'm not going to judge you on that. In fact, I won't even judge you on Jesus. Like I said, not theological. Go with it. What I'm going to judge you on, listen, I'm going to judge you on every word you spoke in judgment of others. Every time you said something that ought to be. I'm not even going to judge you on the fact that you judged. I'm just going to take all of your words, all of your judgments, all of the times you said something that ought to be, 
and we're going to have a split screen, your judgments on one side, your actions on the other. If you follow your judgments, your ought-to-be's, then I'll let you into heaven. In other words, can you follow your own judgments, your own ought-to's, or do you do the very same things? The verdict would be guilty, unrighteous, all of us, none of us could stand in that kind of judgment. You know, we now have five drivers in our house. You can see where this is going. My oldest son bought a new car, and so we have all of our cars in the driveway. And, you know, when you have all of these cars in a driveway, as the father, I look at that and I say, someone's going to hit someone in that driveway. You just know it's coming, okay? And it's happened before. And so I sent a text message to our family, and I said, please, everyone, just please be careful. Please just look in your rearview mirror. Take your time. Please don't hit anyone. It's happened before for us. I'd just gotten the car back a couple of months ago because it had happened, not by me, but by someone else in our house. (laughs) And so about a month ago, one of the drivers in our house, um, it was not me, not Marky either, my son. It wasn't CJ because he can't drive yet. So that only leaves three, and it wasn't Melanie. So that only leaves a volleyball player and a girl who sings up here. So those are your two options. I won't tell you who it was. And so she gets in the car, and... I don't know how this happens. I don't know how this happens, but she pulls out of the driveway, and somehow in pulling out of the driveway, she totals the side of the car, the whole side of the car. She hit our basketball pole, and it scraped. I don't even know how, how it works physically, how it, how it happened. You couldn't open the driver's side at all. The handle falls off. The whole entire side needed to be replaced. And so Melanie called me and told me, and I did not receive the news very well, of course. I mean, I didn't. I really didn't. I try to be honest with you guys so you're not surprised when you see me sin. Um, But she uh, called me and I said, I can't believe this. Now I got to take this car in. I got to call the insurance company. Got to go through all of these steps. And she encouraged me. She said, you know, you need to be godly with, with," I almost said her name, with our daughter. Um... You know, she's already very upset. I've already talked to her about it, et cetera, et cetera. And so I said, okay. And so I called, or she called me to tell me about the accident and what happened. And I was so godly. When she... <laughs> I was, I said, are you, I'm just, I'm just happy that you're okay. And I'm just happy that now you've learned a lesson so that when you're out driving, you'll be a little bit more careful. I mean, I was so godly. And you know what happens, men, when you do that and you actually do the right thing? And then your wife kind of, I mean, I don't want to say ruins it, but she basically said, oh my gosh, I can't believe what you're saying. You're not acting at all like you were when I first called you and told you about this. I'm like, I can't win. And so then... Every time I bring it up now, and those of you who have been here for a while, you know where this is going. My daughter says, 
Daddy, all I'm going to say to you are two words. Traffic circle. <laughs> Those of you who are new, you have no idea what I'm talking about. This is insider language. Um, I had an accident with a traffic circle where I got air in my dad's car, I actually bent the frame, totaled it totally, and this was after I had already gotten into the first accident with his car. And so, my point is, that's what Paul's saying about us. We are such judgmental hypocrites. I mean, it's not just on the big stuff, but on the subtle stuff. The things we say people shouldn't do. The things we judge other people for doing. The things that we tell our children they shouldn't do. Our expectations of our friends, of our children, of our spouses when they don't meet our expectations. We're judging them. Look in verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Verse 13, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. I don't know about you, but when I read that passage, it shows me that I have a problem. I mean, verse 6, he'll render each one according to his works. I thought we were saved by grace. And then if you look at that list, we all fall short. Who of us are not self-seeking? Who of us are always seeking glory and honor for God in everything that we do? This passage has a lot to do with Christians being judgmental, but Paul only uses judging others as the basis to make an even greater point. And he really drives the point home here. In Romans 1-3, through 3, Paul is diagnosing the human race. He's looking at the religious, the irreligious, the saved, the unsaved, older people, younger people, the entire human race, and he's leaving no man standing. He's saying, if anyone desires to be justified by the things that you do, if any of you would like to be judges and judging others, if that's kind of your thing, then no one will be justified that way. Only doers of the law will be saved. That's why in chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says this, Finally, there is none righteous. No, not one. No one who understands. No one who seeks God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Paul writes about those people out there in Romans 1, the people in here in Romans 2. Isaiah was an Old Testament prophet, and in Isaiah 5, he just goes on and on and on about the people out there. They did this. They do that. They are unholy. And then in Isaiah 6, right after that, God gives him a picture of the throne room in heaven. And what is it that Isaiah says? Not woe to those people out there, but woe to me. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So if we aren't justified by the law, where's the hope? 
Look at verse 21, chapter 3, 21. This very first word tells us all we need to know or all that's coming. But, in other words, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's no one who is not self-seeking, no one who seeks the glory of God at all times, no one who obeys their parents. There's no one who isn't ruthless, who doesn't cause strife. There's no one who doesn't judge. There's no one who comes anywhere near meeting the requirements of the law, even if you hold yourself back from doing an action, from saying a wrong word. You thought it in your heart. And many times, even our good deeds we do with wrong motives. And so, Paul leaves no man standing. He says there is none righteous, no not one, no man will be justified by the works of the law. There's no hope until verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, and I love this, apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, there it is, for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. Our case before God is dismissed. Our case files are deleted. It's not just that our sins are covered, but our sins are remitted. That means they are no more. That means they are erased. That somehow God, all-knowing God, all-powerful God, Scripture tells us, forgets our sins. How is that possible? I mean, we forgive but we never forget. God forgives and somehow forgets. The evidence is gone, it is erased, and you can't even be brought to trial. Why? Because you are forgiven. You're a Romans 1 and 2 person, and yet you're forgiven. We've seen that justify, justification means just as if I had never, what? Sinned. Just as if I had never sinned. That would only make you clean. That wouldn't give you any righteousness because as we've seen, our lives are characterized by Romans 1 and 2. That's our righteousness from a human perspective. Our efforts at doing some of those things the right way. Even those inside the church. But justification also means something else. It means just as if I had always what? Interesting. Just as if I had always obeyed. I am not surprised. I'm like the emperor in Star Wars. I set a trap for you. (laughs) Things are going just according to plan. You walked right into my trap. (laughs) Just as if I had always obeyed. We aren't given a clean slate with forgiveness, we're given a full slate of Christ's righteousness. We have to get that. That's what Romans is all about. 
Let's go back to that scene in heaven one more time. You're in line. Billions of people ahead of you. Long, long lines. You finally get to the front. And you're going to watch this videotape on this huge screen of your life with God. Tape starts off, comes up on the screen. Your picture on the front, Facebook profile picture, your favorite quote, the whole nine yards. The video starts. There's a baby born. The baby's not born in a hospital. Baby's born in, among animals. And that baby grows up and cries just like the rest of us and has siblings. He doesn't fight with his siblings like we do. He becomes a young man. And as he becomes a young man, he starts to notice the opposite sex just like we would, but yet with total purity. And then he grows older and he begins a ministry and he calls to himself 12 guys from different walks of life. He's tempted in the desert by Satan himself. He's tempted at his weakest possible moment when he's tired, when he's hungry. But yet he doesn't sin. And then he performs miracles He heals the sick, and during the entire time, he doesn't sin. And then eventually, and I've been saying, he does this, let's change it. Eventually, you're arrested, and you're standing before the people, and they cry out, crucify him, crucify her, crucify him. And you're up on the cross. You're bleeding. And then you're in the grave and you spend an eternity in hell. The equivalent of that. But yet on Sunday, the grave couldn't hold you. And you burst forth from the grave. When God looks on that and you watch that videotape together, he looks at you and he says, you are my son. You are my daughter. In you, I am well pleased. When I look on you, I don't see a Romans 1 and 2 sinner, a judge. All I see is the beauty of my son and all the good deeds that he did. I see all of his righteousness. I see his life. That's what it means to be in Christ. I am crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live, I live in the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Not guilty. He declares you righteous, a right standing with God. Philippians 3, indeed I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, this part, not having a righteousness of my own 
that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, not a righteousness of my own. Romans 1 through 2 is a righteousness of our own. If we want to be justified by our own works, that's where we need to go to see what is required 100% of the time. Not just in action, but in thought and motive. So we have Christ's righteousness. How does this apply in our lives? Well, first, I'll give you a couple. The church should be the first place that we admit failure. The church should be the last place where we judge. We of all people who are not only forgiven, but declared righteous, given this righteousness from above, a righteousness outside of ourselves, should be the first people not to judge. Second, on a personal level, the righteousness of Christ frees us from people-pleasing. It also frees us from defending ourselves. Every time we're attacked, because we realize that when we're defending our works, we're defending our Romans 1 through 2 life. I mean, many times when someone attacks you, and it could even be a spouse, it could be a child, it could be a friend. I mean, whatever it is, it doesn't just have to be an enemy. When someone raises a problem with you or whatever that may be, so many times our inner lawyer starts, right? And we begin to defend ourselves. And the fact is, is that if they knew the whole story, maybe you're not wrong on that one point, but if they knew the whole thing, then what would they say? The righteousness of Christ frees us, frees us from defending ourselves, and it's freeing. You know, when I was in seminary, one of my professors was named Steve Brown, and he's a PCA, that's our denomination, he's a pastor, he's an older man, and he's a professor in seminary, and um, he has this deep, booming voice that's just amazing. And when you hear his voice, you would expect him to be just the judgmental type or whatever. I don't know why, but he is so, he is so filled with grace. And he's such a rebel when it comes to a lot of the things um, that are going on in Christendom. And he wrote this book. It's called Three Free Sins. And you can see why he's controversial. And he wrote this. One time I spoke for the national gathering of my denomination and said some rather controversial things. After my session, I was confronted by a serious young man in a three-piece suit and a concerned look on his face. Dr. Brown, he said, what you said today grieved my heart. Grieved your heart, I responded. There is nothing big enough here to grieve your heart. We're one of the smallest denominations in America, and I am a peon. Find something bigger to grieve your heart. <laughs> you don't want to hear, he said quietly and with a godly patience, what a fellow pastor has to say. I thought about it for a moment, and I love this, and said, no, not really. But if you want to say something and be honest about it, I'll listen, at least for a while. 
I think, he said, his voice rising for the first time, really spiritual people don't shout, but he was close, that you are arrogant, rude, and prideful. Do you know what I said? I said, bingo. You have read me well, but I'm better than I was. Your heart would have been even more grieved five years ago. And it would be even more grieved if you actually knew the whole truth about me now. We ended up talking for over an hour. Eventually, he loosened his tie. And the point is, is that I felt so free when I said, bingo. I had an incredible, wonderful feeling of freedom and joy. Generally, I would have defended myself. I'm quite good at doing that. I would have engaged him in a debate and eaten his lunch. I have a glib and sharp tongue, and I know how to use it to destroy people. I may have worked to belittle him in his judgmental spirit. Any preacher can do that rather easily. I didn't. I just told him that he had read me well. Do you know what I experienced with that one word, bingo? I felt free and powerful. In fact, it felt so good, I decided to do it more. I call it the bingo retort. Someone says to me, you're wrong. I say, bingo, I've been wrong at least 50% of the time. Someone says, you're selfish. Bingo, my mother said the same thing, and now my wife knows that all too well. You're not living up to your potential. Bingo, if it's okay, I'm not going to live up to my potential a while longer. You're not fit to be a Christian. Bingo, that's why Christ died for me. You're a preacher, you're a pastor, you're certainly not spiritually qualified to be one of those. Bingo, I've often said the same thing to God. How can you possibly be a Christian and say or do that? Bingo, I sometimes wonder that myself. Now I want you to imagine how our marriages would change, how our friendships would change, how everything would change relationally about us if we were to adopt that humble posture. The righteousness of Christ frees us to do that. Very practical. We can say it because we have nothing left to prove. We have the righteousness of Christ. There's a TV show, CSI, and it it explores murder mysteries, things like that. And there's one episode where there's a soldier, uh, he's an old broken down Marine, and he's 80 years old, he's lonely, and he's accused of murder. So two younger, uh, burly Marines and a Navy lawyer come to his house to arrest him. And they're kind of roughing him up, and they see how kind of broken down and tired he is. And as they're handcuffing him, his tie kind of goes to the side, and they see under his tie a Congressional Medal of Honor. And these two Marines and the Navy lawyer immediately stand at attention and salute this 80-year-old Marine. They saw a different man. And that's what we have with the righteousness of Christ. More importantly, that's what your fellow Christians have with the righteousness of Christ. Finally, why do we keep on sinning if we have the righteousness of Christ? If we have the imputed righteousness of Christ, a full slate of His righteousness in our lives, 
if when we stand before God, it's true that he sees Christ's righteousness and not that filthy, disgusting movie of our lives, then why would we even try not to sin? Why would we do anything good? Why would we care? When you study Romans 1 and 2, Paul was speaking to the Greek-speaking Hellenists who would have had a view of the man where we can control ourselves. We can control ourselves through our minds. It's mind over matter. But Paul says it doesn't have anything to do with the mind. It has to do with the heart, with the inner core, that sin starts in the heart. That's why when we sin many times, while we're sinning, we know it's wrong. We say, I knew it was wrong. I knew that I was sinning. And yet I continue to do it. That's why Paul said in Romans 7, I do the things I don't want to do. I continue to do those things so in our brains and our minds we know things are wrong, but yet it's too late because our hearts are already slaves to that specific sin. And we are hopeless at that point. We are helpless at that point to battle that sin. We're already sunk. We lost the battle earlier because it started in our hearts. But we have the righteousness of Christ available, listen, to guard our hearts. Paul talks about putting on the full armor of God in Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. And listen. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. There it is. The breastplate of righteousness guards our hearts. It's there for us. It's there for us to put on. Putting on new things, old things past. That righteousness, Christ's righteousness, that breastplate of righteousness is there for us. It's there for us so that nothing nothing can overtake us. We can withstand any temptation that comes our way. Because you have Christ's righteousness. The most vital parts of us are protected. Let the arrows come. Let the thousands fall. You are safe. You are defended from the attacks, putting on that breastplate of righteousness. Scripture says that although there many are the afflictions of the righteous, the Lord will deliver them all. With this breastplate of righteousness, who can attack us? Who can challenge us? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can tribulation or distress or persecution or death, not when we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ, not when we have that breastplate of righteousness, not when we put that on, you won't be afraid of the valley of the shadow of death. You won't even be afraid to stand in the judgment before God with that breastplate of righteousness. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? God himself justifies. Who can condemn? Christ has died and risen again. I mean, as we 
wear that, we begin to develop a purity of heart. And that translates into actions. That's why you won't just go on sinning. If you're even asking that question, if you're asking that question, you still don't get it. Should we just keep on sinning? If you're asking that question for other people, well, they'll just go on sinning, you don't get it. Because when we have that righteousness, we can't help but bear fruit. Abiding in Christ and bearing fruit. What about you? Are you putting on the righteousness that is available to you? That full slate of righteousness of Christ. Let's pray.